Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where today we're going to be talking about King Louis XVIII of France in order to wrap up our discussion about the French kings from the Bourbon Restoration after the Revolution in 1815 until the overthrow of the monarchy as a whole with the establishment of the French Republic, Second French Republic, in 1848. So today we're going to jump right in. Um, unlike with the previous times where I've talked a lot about the escape of the various monarchs or a lot of their early life, we're not really going to talk so much about that with King Louis XVIII. A lot of the stuff I've mentioned, such as the, his involvement in the Declaration of Pilnitz and his government in exile, was, were all things that I've mentioned before under Charles X or things I've mentioned under um, Louis Philippe. So today, more so, we're going to focus more so on his reign exactly and how that compared to the reign of Charles X. So if you want to hear more of those backstories, though, I advise you go back. You listen to my episode on Charles X. You go back and you listen to my episode on Louis Philippe so you can really get that full picture of the French kings from the Bourbon Restoration up until the establishment of the Second Republic. So let's hop right into it. Louis Stanislaus Xavier, who was styled more tr commonly as the Count of Provence, was born on the 17th of November, 1755, in the Palace of Versailles, as a younger son of Louis, who was then the Dauphin of France, meaning the heir of France, and his wife, Maria Josepha of Saxony. He was the grandson of then-reigning King Louis XV, and as a son of the Dauphin, he was styled Fils de France, meaning simply a Prince of France. At the time of his birth, Louis was the fourth in line to the throne of France, behind his father and his two elder brothers, Louis-Joseph Xavier, the Duke of Burgundy, and Louis-Auguste, the Duke of Berry. The former, however, died in 1761, leaving Louis-Auguste the heir to their father until the Dauphin's own premature death in 1765. With these two deaths, Louis's position in the line of succession was elevated um, to second in line of succession, while his brother Louis-Auguste acquired the title of Dauphin. Something I just really have to point out here, and something that seems to be a theme on the show, I don't know why it is, but it always seems to me that out of all the kings we talk about, all of the kings that we remember in history, the most memorable ones are the ones who were never really meant to be king. They were always fourth in line, sixth in line, third in line, never raised to necessarily rule. It's, it doesn't really have anything that's you know really contributing to the life of Louis, um, the 18th at all. But I just think it's something interesting to note that it seems that these people who weren't raised to be kings somehow turn out to be the most memorable kings or the most successful kings. Louis was well-educated, and even though he wasn't, as I said, meant to be the king of France, he was educated in a style very similar to that. He was said to be an intelligent boy, excelling in the classics. His education was of the same quality, as I mentioned, of his brothers Louis Auguste, and he was taught by relatively the same teachers. His education was also quite religious in nature, with several of his teachers being prominent priests and bishops, who drilled into young Louis and his brothers the way that a prince should know how to withdraw themselves, to like to work, and to know how to reason correctly, which really gave an underlying religious principled um, view to a lot of Louis XVIII's decisions, which we'll kind of see when he comes back to France and restores the monarchy. 
In April of 1771, when he was only 15, Louis Stanislaus's education was formally concluded, and he was given his own independent household, um, which with it came as, were, um, were quite extravagant, something that's really astounded a lot of contemporaries, given the extravagance. With a servant size of around 390, he also spent near 10 million livres simply on these extravagances, something which his brother would end up paying for, but something that would, these extravagances were simply a lot for the time period. Um, on the 16th of April, 1771, given that Louis was not, you know, the king of France, he wasn't really serving on his brother's court, and he was just simply living court life, he was married by proxy to Princess Marie Giuseppina of Savoy. The in-person ceremony was conducted on the 14th of May at the Palace of Versailles. Now, a luxurious ball followed this on the 20th of May, but Louis Stanislaw found his wife to be repulsive. She was considered ugly, tedious, ignorant of the customs of the court of Versailles, and the marriage remained unconsummated for years. Biographers disagree about the reason why. Most allege that Louis Stanislaw was impotent or he was simply unwilling to sleep with his wife due to his poor personal hygiene. Now, the issue, as I've mentioned with this before, is I know it's probably a bit crude to be talking about uh, the relationship between a man and his wife, especially in the matter of uh, on the radio show with the Kings. But it's important in royalty to have a line of succession. And I've mentioned in previous episodes, one of the biggest issues for the Bourbons was their inability to produce a solid line of succession. Hence why you have these people who were fourth or fifth in line of succession suddenly becoming kings. In the instance of Louis here, as we've mentioned last time, Louis XVI didn't end up having any kids until very later on and was alleged for the longest time that he was impotent. And the result of this, Louis uh, Stanislaw, the Count of Provence, Louis XVIII, was thought to be the next in line to the throne. And he was kind of raised and he thought himself as such until eventually, as I mentioned um, in previous episodes, Louis XVI did have a child in the form of Louis Louis XVII, who would temporarily be king until his own death, which would elevate Louis the Count of Provence to the position of King of France. Louis was also considered quite obese, and many noted that he waddled instead of walked, and he never exercised, continued to eat enormous amounts of food, which also many contribute to the lack of spark between himself and his wife in regards to their overall relationship. Eventually, though, they did... Um, Almost have a kid in the sense that his wife did get pregnant, but unfortunately suffered a miscarriage. This is why later on, as I mentioned in the Charles X episode, um, Louis XVIII never had children and thus was succeeded by his brother, Charles X. On the 27th of April, 1774, Louis XV fell ill after a few days after he contracted smallpox, where he died on the 10th of May, 1774, at the age of 64. Um, Louis Stanislaw, uh, his elder brother, Louis Auguste, as I mentioned, succeeded their grandfather as Louis XVI. As the eldest brother, um, Louis Stanislaw was next in line to the throne then. And he attempted to gain admittance to the King's Council in 1774 since he saw himself as deserving to be on a given his position in line to the throne, but he was ultimately denied. And he called this the tw a gap of 12 years in my, in, in my political life. Well, my being his political life. Louis XV granted Stanislaw, though, uh, vast revenues in the form of Duchy of, in the form of the Duchy of Elsinon in December of 1774, and it was from here that Louis, the Count of Provence, Louis Stanislaw, simply just lived out his life of extravagance as he always did. For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host Connor Bolanos, the show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present. Hello, this is Kendall Dewar, the producer of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, and today we're having a quick two-minute segment on questions with Connor. 
So, Connor, during the Bourbon reign of the French kings, it seems like all of the kings we've talked about have been named Louis. Um, everyone seems to have very similar names in the European region. Um, do you think this has anything to do with contributing to the monarchy? Is this just like a cultural European thing? or? Yeah, I mean, history is pretty much riddled with monarchy monarchs of the same name you have charles 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 like there's charles the first charles the second charles the third charles the fourth charles the fifth especially in regards when you get to the more habsburg line of dynasties you have in regards to the francis you've mentioned various louis and louis with britain you've had various georges right so it's very much you know more so a very cultural royalty thing right in a way it's not only a way in which they kind of people honor their ancestors right like i'm going to name my son after this you know former king from our own dynasty because he did something great or we want to remember his name so it's also you know mainly it's recognizable right it it kind of is also in indicative of a long legacy monarchies and their legitimacy are built on the idea of there being a long established tradition right so when you go oh i'm just king louis right versus i'm king louis the 18th if you're king louis the 18th it sounds like you come from a long line of royalty right that your family has been in charge for generations and generations and you have that established tradition so you know there's a number of factors that go into why they do it mainly being cultural mainly being in the fact of honoring the former members of their dynasty but that is definitely something that you see pretty much common across every single uh, monarchy right yeah and also uh it seems like the levels of interbreeding in royal families has gone down over time um do you think that the correlation between uh naming uh, sons after previous fathers has like kind of gone down with that also well i think in uh the in the issue of interbreeding is very separate from the issue of um necessarily uh naming um interbreeding more so declined and was mainly prevalent mostly amongst the habsburgs who ruled over uh, spain temporarily but mostly austria and i think a lot of people looked at them saw that they had some issues as a result of their interbreeding and kind of stopped the practice not that it was a it was a common one but it definitely wasn't the most common pr marriage practice in regards to everything so you know i don't necessarily think that has anything to do with regards to why they named people but you do actually see and, and you're right on that towards the end more like the more modern centuries you do see the picking of more unique names. Like when you get into the 1800s, you see the first ever Kaiser Wilhelm. World War I sees the first ever Kaiser Wilhelm II, right? So you do see a tendency away in the later centuries towards more unique names, towards less common names. But I don't think that necessarily has anything to do with the uh, elimination of, as you put it, interbreeding within royal families and royal lines. Alrighty. And now back to the program. Now, with that side segment done, let's get right back into history, shouldn't it be mystery, where we're talking about Louis XVIII. We're going to talk about now about how Louis got tried to get back into politics, right? So after his initial rejections to the King Council, the Assembly of Notables met in 1787 to ratify financial reforms that were hoped in order to resolve the financial crisis and the bread crisis. Ultimately, these were rejected as they were seen as too liberal, and Louis... Uh, the Count of Provence, Louis Stanislaus, became a avid supporter um, of in order to make the king act against the National Assembly, which I've mentioned in previous episodes, declared uh, the you know declared a national assembly at the tennis court with the tennis court oath. So he was definitely on the side of the royalists of the monarchists in this sense, but he also wasn't as against it necessarily as Charles X, as we've talked about 
in previous episodes. And unlike many um, in France, when the National Assembly rose up and the revolution really started, um, Louis Stanislaw didn't necessarily flee France like many others in the royal family did. Instead, he resided at the Palace of Versailles with Louis XVI until eventually they were both moved to Paris, upon which um, Louis Stanislaw stayed in the um, Palace of Luxembourg. Now, at, for the time being, he still maintained his royal titles and all of those rights, and he was actually also deemed regent by the National Assembly for Louis XVI's son, but eventually he was forced to flee in 1791 of June when it became more apparent that they were going to be a lot more hostile to the monarchy and the former royalty. Now, I'm going to skip over a lot of part of the early years because a lot of this is very representative of what's happened in the life of Charles X. A lot of moving around, a lot of moving to England and leading various coalitions. And I think the purpose of this episode is more so explaining the reign of Louis XVIII and how he differed from, for say, Charles X, and he actually spent his time in exile. So he went, as I mentioned, into exile in the Low Countries in June of 1791, where he declared himself the de facto regent of France for the son of Louis XVI, Louis XVII. Louis XVII, though, would eventually die, and it was in his exile where he would be declared King Louis XVIII. Before he was King Louis XVIII, though, as I forgot to mention, he was responsible and one of the main leaders for the Declaration of Pilnitz, that being the declaration that demanded that the National Assembly restore the monarchy and King Louis XVI to the throne, or else there would be an invasion of France. So, having been declared king after the death of Louis XVII, he pretty much served as the de facto head of France as the government in exile throughout the, variety, throughout the coalition war. Through various, at various times, he wrote to Napoleon in order to attempt to um, garner his favor, to maybe restore the Bourbons. At one point, um, Napoleon offered to let him return to France so long as he uh, rescinded all of his titles and claims to the throne. Of course, that never actually worked out, and he would pretty much just travel across Europe, eventually ending up in England where he would live in exile up until the actual restoration. And Louis, while in exile, realized that France would never attempt to accept, would never accept the old regime. And so he reformulated his public policies with the view of reclaiming his throne, issuing a declaration that was far more liberal than many of the other declarations that he had made earlier. So it, it refuted his initial declaration of Verona, which is a very conservative declaration, which promised to abolish conscription, retain the Napoleonic administrative and judicial systems. He wanted to reduce taxes, eliminate political prisons, and guarantee amnesty to everyone who did not oppose a Bourbon restoration. So... These were, compared to Charles X, who I mentioned was an ultra-royalist who pretty much wanted to crack down on everything about the revolution and destroy all of its institutions. Louis XVIII recognized that France couldn't really go back to that with the revolution, so he altered his style in order to be more moderate, and that's something you will see coming up in regards to his reign. In 1814, when Louis was restored to the throne before Napoleon would ultimately come back during the Hundred Days, Louis XVIII implemented a constitution known as the Char Charter of 1814, which included many progressive provisions such as the freedom of religion, a legislator composed of two houses, and the press was also given a large degree of freedom. And there would also be a provision that former owners of the Biens Nationales, confiscated during the revolution, would be confiscated for all their stolen lands. The Constitution had 76 articles. Taxation was voted on by the chambers. Catholicism was, was restored as the official religion of France. And to be eligible for the Chamber of Deputies, one had to pay over 1,000 francs a year in tax, had to be over the age of 40, and the king would also be responsible for appointing um, 
peers to the Chamber of Peers. So while there was still a high degree of uh, monarchical control over these institutions, and while it was still obviously not as extensive as the liberal reforms under, let's say, the second uh, under the first French Empire, they were definitely more liberal reforms than a lot of his um, ultra royalist counterparts advocated for. If you're not reading and learning history, then you're doomed to repeat it. For all of you just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos. With the coming of the Hundred Days War, Louis XVIII was forced to flee once again, going into exile until he was restored on the 26th of June when he walked back into the city of Paris. He proclaimed that he would, um, Louis took a more lax approach to those who supported Napoleon, where he released a, pro- released a proclamation stating that those who served the emperor in the Hundred Days would not be prosecuted, except for those who were labeled as instigators. It was also acknowledged that Louis XVIII's government might have actually made mistakes during the First Restoration by his own government. A king admitting a mistake was certainly something that was unpopular, unprecedented at the time, but certainly something that also showed his more moderate tendencies. King Louis was also worried about the counter-revolutionary element that maybe sought revenge for the Bourbon restorations, and he promised to re-grant a constitution that would guarantee public debt, freedom of the press, religion, and equality before the law. It would guarantee full property rights of those who had purchased national rents during the revolution, and these were all promises that during his reign he would keep. Throughout his reign, the ultra-royalist faction really started to return to power in France. They wanted revenge and were eager to punish the various usurpers and rest- who, you know, part- dared to partake in the revolution. And they also wanted to restore the old regime. Amongst these pe- ultra fa- ultra-royalists, as I mentioned in previous episodes, was Charles X, who was really attempting to influence King Louis XVIII into being more ultra-royalist, to being a lot more conservative, and to restore the ancient regime. But King Louis XVIII rejected pretty much all the advice, and he called for continuity and reconciliation and a search for peace and prosperity. The exiles were not given back their lands and property, although they eventually received repayment in the form of bonds as a form of compensation. The Catholic Church, however, was once again favored, something that the ultra-royalists were in favor of, given that the church under the revolution had suffered greatly. The Erectorate was, however, limited to the richest men in France, most of whom had actually supported Napoleon, which kind of, you know, shows a bit of an issue in the sense that there were all these former Napoleon supporters who now served as the electoral basis of France. In foreign policy, um, he pretty he removed Talleyrand and continued most of Napoleon's policies in a more peaceful fashion, um, as peaceful as Napoleon foreign policies can get, considering most of his foreign policy was conquering the continent of Europe. But he did keep to the policy of minimizing Austria's role within the continent. But he did reverse Napoleon's friendly overtures to Spain and the Ottoman Empires, as he didn't really see them as being beneficial towards a relationship with France. However, the king's role in politics as he went on in life was voluntarily more and more dis- diminished. He signed most of his duties to his, to his council. And during the summer of 1815, his council mainly partook upon a series of reforms. The royal council was dissolved and replaced by a more tightly knit privy council as well during this time. So although he took a lot more of a loose hand in regards to politics, he also seemed to be trending somewhat more conservative than he had originally. On on the 14th of July, the ministry dissolved the units of the army named Rebellious, and a hereditary peerage was reestablished by the ministry at Louis' behest. 
So towards the end of his reign, as we're seeing here, he started off being very moderate, but as he started to pull away from his duties, Charles X and the various ultra-royalist factions began to gain power, and especially in the Chamber of Deputies, where they started to win larger and larger majorities. And especially in southern France, where we saw the White Terror, as I discussed under Charles X, um, you know, you really saw the return of ultra-royalists and the diminishing of this moderate conservatism that King Louis XVIII seemed to pose. But, you know, despite the white hair and everything, the king was very reluctant to shed blood, and he was greatly irritated by the ultra-reactionary chamber of deputies, who felt that Louis XVIII was not executing enough people in revenge. And the government issued a proclamation of amnesty to traitors to stop these executions in January of 1816. In the spring of 1824, Louis XVIII's health began to fail. He was suffering from obesity, gout, gangrene, both dry and wet, in his legs and his spine. And he would eventually die on the 16th of September, 1824, where he was succeeded by his younger brother, Charles X. The reign of Louis XVIII was really a reign of reconciliation. He attempted to moderate both the liberals and the conservatives in order to create a government that would best work and would be most stable. He knew if he went too liberal, the conservatives would be upset and that would jeopardize his own monarchy, but he also knew that if he went too conservative, such as Charles X did, there would only be revolution. And we saw that he attempted to moderate this with the Charter of 1814 and these various constitutional rights, which were definitely more liberal than the old regime was, but certainly not very liberal in the eyes of the revolution. So he kind of struck up a position that really didn't appease anyone, but also didn't greatly anger anyone. And it was only when the king was removed from politics as he began to withdraw that the ultra-royalists began to took power, that King Charles X began to undo his work and laid the seeds for what would happen when he was overthrown in the revolutions where Louis-Philippe would become and come to take power. Thank you for joining us for this week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We're done with the French kings, and we're going to move on to a new historical figure from our past, so join us next week to listen to that. And that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs. There's many more historical figures from our past to discuss, so be sure to join us same time, same place, next week for a new edition of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.